Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. And I'm David Neer, political director of Daily Coast. The Down Ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the many elections that take place below the presidency, from Senate to City Council. Please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Now, considering it's the spring of an off year, we've got a pretty big election night coming up, don't we? We finally do. On Tuesday, we have the pivotal Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, so we are going to be previewing that one, as well as the race for the vacant state Senate seat that could determine whether Republicans keep their supermajority in that chamber. There is also the Chicago mayor's race. That's the third big contest on the ballot. We'll be talking about all of those. And there's one more mayor's race that won't be taking place till later this fall where we got big news. That's in America's fourth largest city, Houston. Then we are going to be returning to one of our very favorite topics on the down ballot. That is state Supreme Court races. We have a fantastic guest. Kara Ong Whaley is with the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. I'm sure that you know their crystal ball website. And she is going to be running down all of the most important Supreme Court races that are on the ballot in 2024. We have an excellent episode, so let's get rolling. Beard, it is finally here. The pivotal Wisconsin Supreme Court election on April 4th, this Tuesday, coming right at you. Potentially the most important election of 2023. Very much so. You know, the strange thing about it, despite its huge importance, obviously, as all of our listeners know, the court has a four to three conservative majority. A conservative seat is up. It's an open seat. And progressives could take their own four to three majority if they win on Tuesday, despite how monstrously important this race is, we haven't seen a single public poll. It's really, really hard to believe. The only hard piece of data, well, there are two hard pieces of data that we have to go on. The first is that we know in the primary that the progressive candidates, there were two of them, combined for 54% of the vote, and the two conservatives combined for 46% of the vote. The thing is, we don't know whether that's going to be predictive at all of the electorate for the general election on Tuesday. The other piece of hard data that we know for certain is that progressive judge Janet Protasiewicz has completely, completely destroyed her conservative rival, Dan Kelly, on fundraising. We just had fundraising reports for the period from Feb 7 to March 20. And during that time period, Protasiewicz outraised Kelly 12 million to 2 million. It's a truly astonishing divide. Now, 8 million of Protasiewicz's money came from the Wisconsin Democratic Party, which can make unlimited transfers. And the Wisconsin Democratic Party benefited from some very big million dollar donations from a few billionaires, including Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker and George Soros. But why haven't Republicans been taking in this kind of money and giving it to Dan Kelly? It's still really hard to say. He has had millions of dollars spent on his behalf by the conservative Uline family. But as we have mentioned many, many times on the show, and undoubtedly will mention again in the future, candidates always get far, far better advertising rates than outside groups. In Wisconsin, it seems that Protasiewicz is spending only about a third as much as these outside groups like the Uline-backed Super PAC. So she has dominated the airwaves. Progressives overall have dominated the airwaves. But it's Wisconsin. Most elections there are decided by tiny, tiny margins. And we just really are flying blind here 
in the absence of polling or any other hard data that we can rely on. And that's very strange for such an important race. Yeah, you'd think if nothing else, this would be a good opportunity for a news organization that knows they're going to be polling Wisconsin in 2024 for the presidential race and the Senate race to put an extra poll in the field, get some good data in terms of how to poll the state, see how well they do. And if they mess up, it won't be as obvious as if you're polling in October of 2024 <laughs> and you can adjust if you need to, but no one's taken that opportunity. So we are flying blind instead of polling. Obviously the data that you mentioned is better for us than for Republicans, but it's by no means uh, a guarantee. So we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I guess that's pretty funny, the notion of getting kind of a freebie poll here. I do think that if the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, let's say, ran a poll, it would get enormous attention. Of course, it's expensive to run a poll, but I don't know, you could do an online poll, you know, with the online pollster or a robo pollster wouldn't really cost that much. And there is, there are still a few days left until election day. So maybe we'll see one at the last minute. But, you know, as always in a situation like this, you just have to keep fighting like it's a total toss up and not take anything for granted. And there's no doubt that Democrats and progressives in Wisconsin are approaching the race in exactly that way. There is, of course, one other really important race on the ballot in Wisconsin that we have mentioned before as well. That is the race for the vacant 8th State Senate District in the northern Milwaukee suburbs. This is a Republican-held seat that became vacant a few months ago when a veteran GOP lawmaker decided to resign. Republicans, as you, our listeners, know, won an ill-gotten supermajority in the State Senate in 2022, thanks to extreme partisan gerrymanders that were signed off on by the state Supreme Court, incidentally. And with this supermajority, they are eager to start impeaching Democrats because it only takes a simple majority in the assembly. They have almost a supermajority in the assembly. That's the lower chamber and to impeach an official. And then it takes a two thirds supermajority in the Senate to actually remove them from office. Republicans have been quite open about their interest in doing so. And in fact, the Republican who is running in this special election, Dan Knodel, said just the other day that he would, quote, certainly consider impeaching Janet Protasiewicz. She isn't even on the Supreme Court yet, and he wants to impeach her. You know, he had these comments where he claimed that because of crime in Milwaukee, where Protasewicz is currently on the bench, that's a reason why she should possibly be impeached because, quote, the, the, the judges there have failed. Is That's the term that he used. But the thing is, there's 47 judges on the bench in Milwaukee County. And the only one he mentioned by name happens to be the one who is running for the state Supreme Court next week. So that's total bullshit. Uh, Canoto, by the way, also got badly outraised by his Democratic opponent during that same time frame from early February to mid-March. Jody habish Sinekin outraised him 840000 to 260000 This district, though, as we've mentioned, it's pretty conservative. Uh, it favored Donald Trump by five points. The one good piece of news is that this area has been moving to the left in recent years, like a lot of other suburban turf. It'll still be a really difficult race for Democrats to win. But if they do, then they can take away this GOP supermajority and stop their plans in their tracks. But 
I'm frankly quite worried that if Republicans do win that one, that they really will decide to unleash their impeachment powers. They could impeach the governor, Tony Evers. They can impeach any progressive member of the state Supreme Court. They could impeach all of them. There really is nothing stopping them. And I think that things could get really dangerous really fast. Absolutely. And as we've seen, the Wisconsin Republican Party does not believe that there should be any limits on their power. And as long as they have the state legislature, they think they should be able to do whatever they want. And they are more than willing to do whatever they have to, to get anyone out of their way. And that includes the governor, that includes the Supreme Court. We've seen them refuse to uh, confirm officials that Evers has nominated and then have the currently conservative Supreme Court refuse to kick out Republicans whose terms have expired from various boards. Um, so there's all sorts of stuff that they've already been doing. And this would just be another step that it would not shock me either that they would take. Now, potentially the one piece of good news here is that since this is taking place on the same day as the Supreme Court race, um, if um, we do have a good night in the Supreme Court race, it could be true that some coattails might benefit um, the state Senate Democrat um, if we're winning by a comfortable margin. Obviously, that's optimistic, but you know, since we did go 54-46 in the primary, if something similar were to happen, that could maybe help a little bit down ballot as well. The other big race of Tuesday night is in Chicago, where the mayoral runoff is taking place that pits a conservative Democrat and former Chicago Public School CEO Paul Vallis against progressive Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. Now, Vallis led in the first round comfortably, but short of 50%, and polls have shown Johnson closing the gap on him throughout this runoff period. Though I think if you took the aggregate of the polls, it would still show Vallis with a narrow lead. So I think he should still be considered probably a narrow favorite. But at this point, either candidate winning would not surprise me as we go into election day. Now, Johnson's been endorsed by a who's who of the progressive left during the runoff, including Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, and fourth place finisher, uh, Representative Chewy Garcia. And somewhat surprisingly, assistant Democratic leader Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, who is definitely not ideologically aligned with the rest of Johnson's endorsers, but there's a good chance of the fact that Johnson is the African-American candidate in the race was a contributing factor to Clyburn endorsing him. Now, in a bit of a surprise of his own, Vallis secured Illinois Senator Dick Durbin's late endorsement, who's generally seen as pretty progressive as well as former Governor Pat Quinn and former Secretary of State Jesse White, all Democrats who have held, of course, statewide office. Now, as a, as a final note on this race, in the first round, Johnson improved his results as the ballots went along and were counted, particularly the late counted mail ballots. So if the runoff race is close, we may not know the result for a while, as there's a good chance Johnson will again approve as the late counted mail ballots come in. There are also a few other mayoral elections on tap on Tuesday night in Denver, in Colorado Springs, and in Lincoln, Nebraska. We are going to be covering all of these races in our live blog at Daily Coast Elections. Just go to elections.dailycoast.com on Tuesday night. We'll also be following them blow by blow on Twitter. That's at DK Elections. And of course, we will be recapping them on the show next week. Now we do have one piece of news that's not about next Tuesday's election, and that is in America's fourth largest city and the largest city in Texas, Houston, where veteran Democratic Representative Sheila Jackson Lee 
upended the race for mayor by announcing her entry into what's already been a crowded field, looking to succeed term-limited incumbent Sylvester Turner this fall. Now, Jackson Lee has represented the Houston area in Congress since 1995, so she's very, very well established in the city. But there were already a ton of candidates in the race, the most notable of which is State Senator John Whitmire, a Democrat who's been running since 2021. He's got a $10 million war chest. He's definitely to the right of Jackson Lee ideologically and has support of some of the more conservative elements in the area. Now, this race will be taking place in November with a good chance to have a runoff the following month if no candidate takes majority. All the serious candidates are Democrats. No Republicans been elected mayor of Houston here since 1981. So this is definitely a race we'll be keeping an eye on for the rest of the year. One interesting thing about this race is that Jackson Lee doesn't necessarily have to give up her seat in Congress in order to run. But there's a weird wrinkle here, which is in Texas, they don't schedule runoffs until they're shown to be necessary. So after election day, and typically they happen about six weeks after the initial election. The problem is that Texas has an incredibly early filing deadline for the ballot for 2024. They always do. And it's very likely that the filing deadline for 2024 would actually come before the Houston mayoral runoff. So I think Jackson Lee would actually have to make some kind of decision before that all comes to a head, because if she's not going to run again, you got to give the opportunity to other people to file. But if she does decide to file for re-election while there is a runoff underway, what does that say about her belief in her own chances? Look, this is entirely speculative. We have no idea what she's going to do. She hasn't talked about her plans for 24. I'm sure she would say she's just focused on 2023 and the Houston mayor's race. But that is the kind of bureaucratic issue you got to keep an eye on in terms of whether someone can keep their seat or not. And of course, the results of the first round could factor into her decision making here. If she gets 48% of the vote in the first round, she may act very differently than if she gets you know, 32 and is in second place or something. So we'll just have to wait and see, but it is a good flag for sure. That does it for our weekly hits. Coming up, we are going to be discussing Supreme Court races with Kara Ong Whaley of the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. We are going to be focusing in particular not on 2023, you've heard us talk about Wisconsin enough, but on the many, many races taking place in 2024. They are all contests that progressives need to know about, and we have a ton of information coming your way. Today, we are talking with Dr. Kara Ong Whaley, who is the Academics Program Officer at the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. She is also the co-host of the Politics is Everything podcast. Kara, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you uh, collect to the Collective Davids for letting me join the show. It's really exciting to be with you both. Normally, I'm in the host seat, and now I'm in the being grilled seat. <laughs> so <laughs> I hope you will both equally jump in on the conversation conversation because you probably have more to say than I do. <laughs> well, we are certainly delighted to be turning the tables on you. You know, not long ago, we spoke with one of your colleagues, Kyle Kondik, who told us how he came to the world of election analysis from journalism and political campaigns. 
And I know you came up through the world of academia. We'd love to hear a little bit about how you ended up involved with uh, Sabato's Crystal Ball. Yes, thank you. So the short answer and the common theme probably for both Kyle and I is is that Larry Sabato has been a mentor for a long time. And I was his head TA when I was in graduate school at the University of Virginia. And I've co-authored a book on American government uh, with him for the last decade now. <laughs> um, time has flown by. And so when a position became available to work with him and Kyle, Miles, and everyone else on at, at the Center for Politics, uh, I, I jumped on it. And so it's really exciting. Um, I had had a radio show uh, when I was at UC Santa Barbara and a podcast when I was at James Madison University, which was my previous position. And I floated the idea of having a podcast here at the Center for Politics and uh, Kyle and and everyone loved the idea. So that's how we got started. And we would love to have you all on our show um, anytime. <laughs> well, well, we'll have to make it happen. So tell us about this book that you uh, co-author with uh, Larry Sabato. Well, the, uh, the t there's a textbook that I have been doing with him since grad school. So it's, it's a textbook that's used in uh, college, primarily college classrooms, but I think also a lot of honors uh, or advanced placement classes in high schools also use it. Um, and it was, it's been the best-selling American government textbook for, for quite a long time. It's published through, through Pearson. And now that I'm on the team, I'm also contributing to the biannual elections book as well. So that's exciting. Great. Now you've also started contributing to the crystal ball with some articles and you recently published a really comprehensive rundown of state Supreme Court races in the upcoming 2024 cycle. Now we've talked a fair amount about state Supreme Court races on this podcast a lot last year, obviously, when there were a number of important races. But I want to take a step back for a second and really look at a 30,000 foot view. Could you sort of walk us through how we came to this place where these Supreme Court races are getting so much attention and in some cases having tens of millions of dollars poured into them? Yes. Um the short answer is money follows power. <laughs> uh, so I'll take the, the first part of that statement, which is the power question. Since the Supreme Court uh, decided under uh, Ruto versus Common Cause in 2019 that gerrymandering was a non-judiciable non political question, you know, that's really shifted questions about voting rights and elections to state Supreme Courts. Um, and and so that's moved uh, question political questions, uh, you know, out of the federal courts and down to the Supreme Courts. And then, as I'm sure you all covered in last year's elections, um, you know, that there's other policy issues that. Uh, the Supreme Court has either taken up and in ways that are opposed by some states um, uh, or or. Uh, basically decided that states should should be the locus of power, um, especially issues like reproductive rights uh, and the Dobbs decision, uh, marriage equality, um, and education policy. Uh, I, I didn't talk about this in, in the most recent crystal ball piece, but you know, Kentucky had a really important case that was decided last year when it took up education opportunity. 
And, and so state courts are just increasingly deciding um, issues of importance in, in people's daily lives. Um, you know, they also, Supreme Courts also take up um, criminal justice cases um, and, and immunity. Um, and, and really, it seems, as I'm sure you all have followed, that 2020 was, was really a critical year, especially because of the pandemic. Um, and, you know, that in that year, state Supreme Courts took on so many decisions regarding ballot access and then election results. And then there's also, you know, with governors making a lot of emergency order declarations because of the pandemic that really put state Supreme Courts in the spotlight. And then with 2020, we not only had the pandemic and the presidential election, we also had the 2020 census, which led to reapportionment and redistricting cycles. And so that's also raised the importance of the state courts. So that's the power part of that statement um, and the significant change in the power structure with Supreme Courts taking more of a role deciding these issues. Um, but then there's also the money follows part. <laughs> um, and, and that really, um, you know, the, the Brennan Center for Justice is really the go-to source on money because they track all of, all of the spending that's occurring um, in, in state Supreme Court races. But really since citizens, the Supreme Court Citizens United decision, we've just seen an explosion of national special interest groups that are expanding their presence in state Supreme Court races. And that's, that's, really upping the ante, um, you know, with the state Supreme Court race that's going to happen in Wisconsin next week. Uh, Kantar Media has shown that there's over 28 million um, reported political ad orders and already, you know, 8 million has been spent. There's projections that basically that race is going to cost 26 million, uh, which is the most, uh, it, it's going to be the highest <laughs> um, spending election in the state's history and probably nationally. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges with the Citizens United question and the rise of of outside groups in spending and being the main source of fundraising and spending in state Supreme Court elections is that the money is is really the sources of the money is really opaque. And so it's really difficult um, to know who's actually spending the money and who's who's behind it. Um, but in, in some of the key Supreme Court races, especially Michigan and Wisconsin, where we've seen outside groups spending, you know, far more than the candidates themselves. So, so that's really what's driving the increases there. You know, I saw a wild statistic in a new article in The New Yorker just a few days ago. Pat Rogensack, who is the conservative justice who's retiring from the Wisconsin Supreme Court, she was first elected to the bench in 2003. 20 years ago, the outside spending in her campaign, according to this article, was $27,000. And yeah. I guess it just blows my mind a little bit. You know, if you read Robert Caro, LBJ really understood the whole money follows power regarding congressional elections all the way back in the 1930s. And it's taken almost a century since then for the same phenomenon to really unfold with state Supreme Court races. And you know, you identified all these recent triggers for that, but I guess I still find it surprising that these courts have always been powerful, and yet it's only really quite recently that we have seen this huge ramped up 
investment in these kinds of races. So, I mean, I looked um, in in the piece, I actually just kind of plotted um, spending for both partisan elections and nonpartisan Supreme Court elections. And really it has, you know, I only looked at the last two decades. So, you know, I don't, I don't know that that's, I can say much beyond the last two decades on, on that question, but they really have since, since 2000 elections, um, since the 2000 presidential elections, spending has been pretty consistently high in both um, states with partisan and nonpartisan elections. I didn't look at, at states with retention elections um, because those, you know, in, in many of those races, outside groups are not are not really getting involved as as heavily. Um, but but really, I would say the funding levels have been high for at least two decades. So, of course, we just mentioned Wisconsin, and we've talked a ton about that race on this show this year, as you might imagine. But in 2024, there are going to be far more Supreme Court races on the ballot. In fact, in this roundup that you put together, you state that there are 32 states that are going to be holding Supreme Court elections for 73 seats. And that really is a ton. Now, of course, not all of these races are going to be competitive. It's like any other level of the ballot. You know, there's 33 Senate races a year, only say 10 or so of them are going to be competitive. But there are a whole bunch of states, nonetheless, where there really will be contested Supreme Court elections in 2024. And we would love to drill down on the specifics of those to sort of preview these for our listeners. And We've talked about on the show the different kinds of elections. You alluded to them just a moment ago. Some states hold partisan elections where candidates are actually identified by D and R labels on the ballot. Some are ostensibly nonpartisan, like in Wisconsin, but in recent years, the ideological lines are very clear. And then, of course, there are these retention elections where voters are simply asked whether they want to keep someone on the bench, yes or no. There isn't actually a candidate opposing the incumbent. And those very rarely tend to go against sitting judges, but they certainly can be interesting as well. And so I thought we would start with the partisan contests. And there are at least three states that we thought would merit drilling down into a little deeper, North Carolina, Ohio, and Texas. So we would love it if you could give us a preview of the current lay of the land in each of those states and what we can expect coming up next year. Sure, absolutely. And feel free to contribute as well. Um, uh, I I know we, we might have a chance to talk a little bit about uh, the article I did on election denialism. And that's actually what set me off in looking at Supreme Court races, because I was thinking about 2024 and realizing the role that Supreme Court justices played in um, the election challenge cases. And so that's actually what <laughs> had what, what set me in the path to, to actually look what was going to be happening in the state Supreme Court races. Um, I also didn't cover this uh, because it's technically 2023 and, and Wisconsin is getting a lot of coverage, but Pennsylvania is also having um, a Supreme Court race and their primary uh, election, they have a closed uh, partisan primary in May and then a general election in November. Um, in, in Pennsylvania right now, uh, there is a, a position that opened up uh, because of a justice who passed away. Um, and so it's currently six justices on the court, four Democrats, two Republicans. So whoever wins in November is not likely, um, you know, it's not going to really change the the partisan balance of the court in Pennsylvania. But 
you know, Pennsylvania is an important state. And if Republicans win there, it could bring the party closer to retaking a majority, which it lost about a decade ago. Um, so maybe we'll start with with North Carolina, if that's okay. We can just take them in alphabetical order. Um, you know, North Carolina is really interesting uh, because Republicans reclaimed the majority in the North Carolina Supreme Court in 2022. And so Republicans had really heralded uh, uh, that win, especially uh, because they could help Republicans redraw the state congressional map. Um, and there's also a really important issue that the court has decided to re here uh, just in the last week, they're going to rehear um, the voter ID uh, case, uh, uh, which the previous majority had overruled. <laughs> and, and so now they might enforce the, the constitutional requirement for vote to show uh, strict voter ID um, on election day. Um, so North Carolina Supreme Court has actually, Republicans flipped two seats in uh, 2020 um, as well. So it has gone from a 6-1 Democratic majority to a 5-2 Republican majority over the course of the last two election cycles, just showing how, um, how contested those races are and, and how much attention has been on them. And, you know, there's been uh, years-long struggles between the Republican-controlled legislature and and the Democratic State Supreme Court. Um, I think one of the more important things uh, is the NAAC, the North Carolina NAACP versus Moore case um, in which the court ruled that a racially gerrymandered legislature couldn't propose amendments to the North Carolina state constitution. That case, of course, made its way up to the state Supreme Court and is at the heart of the independent state legislature's theory. Um, interestingly, uh, because the North Carolina Supreme Court has now changed party control uh, in this last election, that may give the United States Supreme Court the opportunity to uh, not make a decision in the Moore versus Harper case and just not uh, or, or not decide about the independent state legislature theory um, as the state Supreme Court's going to rehear that case. Um, so there's the Democratic justice that's going to be up for re-election in 2024. Um, and uh, uh, so Justice Michael Morgan is up for for reelection um, on there. There is a credible declared candidate, Jefferson Griffin, um, uh, and that one is uh, likely to be, you know, really closely contested and, and is really going to be worth watching to see whether Democrats can retain a seat on that court. So it's one Democratic seat up in North Carolina in 2024. And if Democrats hold it, the Republican majority would still remain at five to two. But I'm wondering when Democrats would be able to take back the court at the soonest possible date. I actually do know this one since North Carolina is my home state, of course. Unfortunately, it's not great news. The next time the Democrats could potentially take back control would be 2028, when there are three Republican seats up from the 2020 election. So we've got a ways to go, but obviously holding the second seat is better than losing it. That's a great jumping off point to talk about the next state we wanted to discuss, which is Ohio. That was another state that had heavily contested elections in 2022. And this is a state where Republicans only have a narrow majority, and that actually could be on the line in 2024. 
Yes. Um, I, you know, so also some important changes that have occurred in Ohio. Um, structurally, um, judicial elections were nonpartisan until, well, ostensibly nonpartisan. I call all the nonpartisan races ostensibly nonpartisan because yep. no, the letters don't appear after the names, but with all of the funding and, <laughs> you know, behind different candidates and uh, looking at, at where justices rule, it's pretty easy to figure out um, uh, what the party, what their partisan leans are, their ideological bents are. Um, but until 2021, Ohio had ostensibly nonpartisan elections, but the, partisi, the parties nominated candidates in the primary elections um, and the party designations for the candidates weren't on the ballot. Um, that changed with the election of a Democratic justice in 2020, uh, Jennifer Brunner. Um, and, and that was, uh, her election is what cut the Republican majority down to 4-3. Um, and so Republican... Ohio Republicans in the legislature passed a law making general elections partisan with with labels on the ballot. Um, so again, last year Republicans really celebrated uh, the the win, especially because of redistricting and, and wanting more favorable maps for for the Republican Party. And you know, the, a four three Republican majority would be more amenable to um, the Republican Party's re redistricting plans. Um, Justice Joe Dieters, um, who was appointed by a Republican governor, Mike DeWine, um, is going is is on the ballot in, in 2024. And, you know, he has a long history of service in the criminal legal system. Um, and he's he's known for his very tough on stance crime. Um, I believe he's even in favor of bringing back capital punishment um, in, in Ohio using capital punishment. Um, but he's no stranger to elections and he's actually um you know but he's also done well and and done better than than uh president trump uh, uh when he he ran for election uh in 2020. so yep ohio is a big one <laughs> to to watch um the um there you know there there are there are also in ohio there are also um two democratic justices that will be up um mike donnelly um, who who won in 2018. He was first elected in 2018. He won with 61% of the vote. And Justice Melody Stewart, um, who won in 2018 um, against a um, an incumbent justice. Uh, and, and both of those are Democratic candidates. Um, and, and so again, I, I suspect that Ohio will <laughs> will see lots of funding and, and lots of contestation over those Ohio seats. Now, one state that is definitely not up for grabs and won't be for a while, but I feel still we're talking about is Texas. Now, Texas, of course, has been this white whale for Democrats for quite some time. They've been an incredible statewide losing streak. In fact, they haven't won a single statewide election since 1994 at any level of the ballot. And that's the longest such streak in the nation. So the Texas Supreme Court is 9-0 Republican. But that also means that if Texas ever does finally go Democrats way, then control could change in a fairly short order. There are three Republican seats up next year. What do you see happening there? So there, there are no declared candidates yet in those races, but I'm glad you wanted to talk about it, even though all nine of the sitting justices on the court are Republicans. Um, uh, the current governor, Republican Governor Greg Abbott, has appointed five of them. Um, 
one of the things I noticed in in looking at the previous election, the the previous elections of the three justices that are up, Jimmy Blacklock, uh, John Devine, um, and Jane Bland, is that they have garnered challenges from uh, judges that are coming out of Harris County, Houston. Um, and so, you know, those races, they're not too far off. Um, so in uh, 2018, uh, the Blacklock only won with 53 53.2% of the vote. Um, Divine won with 53.3% of the vote. And um, uh, Bland won with 55.2% of the vote. So, you know, I think it's really going to depend on, you know, are there justices with name recognition coming out of that Houston area, um, you know, where there there's stronger bases and that can really sort of bolster uh, the Democratic candidates that might run. And of course, 2018 was a good year for Democrats, but we've also seen Texas, you know, inch its way to the left, even in not so good years for Democrats compared to the rest of the nation. So we don't know how 2024 is going to look. It's probably unlikely that Texas is going to be super competitive in 2024, but we don't know. And certainly as we go later into the decade, it's definitely worth keeping an eye on. Now I want to move us to some of the states with nonpartisan Supreme Court elections. And these are states where often the results can differ sometimes a lot from the sort of conventional D versus R races that we're used to when the partisan identifications are on the ballot. And I want to start with a couple of states in the upper Midwest that are currently have a majority of, of progressive aligned justices, uh, Michigan and Minnesota, they both have a number of seats up. So tell us what's going on in those two states. Yeah, um, Michigan, uh, which has, you know, been at the center of attention for a couple of cycles now, I think is going to be very clearly at the center of attention in 24. Um, the Supreme Court there has, uh, is a 4-2 Democratic, or excuse me, 4-3 Democratic, uh, Democratic majority on the Supreme Court. Um, so it's going to be one to watch closely. Um, this is also an important one uh, because it can have implications for uh, election administration and election outcomes. Um, this was actually the the court races that really sparked my interest in 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 looking, you know, doing a broader overview. Um, because in 2020, the Michigan Supreme Court um, refused to hear. Um, a challenge to the state's election results from uh, former President Donald Trump's uh, lawyers. And Republican justices dissented from some of the decisions. So I think that's what makes Michigan really important one to watch. And it also, you know, Michigan is a little bit different from some of the other states. They have their own uh, judicial, uh, pro judicial election system process uh, where candidates are nominated by the parties and then they all run together on the same ballot and the top two finishers win. Um, so uh, last year in, in the elections, two incumbents, one a Democrat and one a Republican won. So I think it's going to be really important to, um, you know, to, to watch, to watch Michigan. Um, Minnesota is also uh, another <laughs> uh, important one to watch. Right now, the, the court is currently 5-2 Democrats, um, uh, and there are two Democrats and two Republicans that are that are going to be up. Um, 
And, and again, you know, with, with elections, with election outcomes and election administration, it, it's another state to, to watch closely. And, you know, given that it will align with the presidential election year, that will also make it uh, uh, an important one to watch. You know, you talked about Michigan having a different system for electing judges than most other states. And Beard, you mentioned a moment ago that as a result, you can wind up with these results that seem to differ quite a bit from the usual partisan lean. One thing that Michigan does differently is that incumbent justices are listed very explicitly on the ballot as incumbents. And I've got to believe that plays a big role in allowing Republicans in particular to succeed there, because as we saw at the top of the ticket, you know, the Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, won by a big margin. Democrats dominated in all the other statewide races, except the Supreme Court races last year. Democrats and Republicans each went one for one. Yeah, it's definitely the case that an incumbency marker on the ballot, particularly on in races where there's a low amount of information out there sometimes, like judicial races, as opposed to a Senate race, or obviously the presidential, people will see that incumbent as a marker and just vote for that person rather than make sort of more educated understands of what might be going on in those Supreme Court races. So, Kara, I want to ask you about a state that's definitely an odd duck, and that is Montana, which has nonpartisan elections. And I think maybe, you know, you joked about these being ostensibly nonpartisan. I think maybe there's a little bit more of a tradition of independence in Montana elections, but that's obviously changed. We saw last year that conservatives made a concerted effort to knock off a swing justice there. It's a little difficult, though, to pin down the court's overall ideological nature. From what I've read and what I understand, there's generally three justices who are considered to be pretty solidly liberal, two who are very conservative, and two who are swing votes. But for the most part, this court has been very independent-minded and has issued a number of rulings, some unanimous, blocking legislation that the GOP legislature has passed. So what are the stakes for 2024? Well, I think you've actually just <laughs> outlined what the stakes are, and and that is sort of the conflict between Republican lawmakers and and the Supreme Court and the judicial system. Um, so there are two justices that will be up for re-election, and both of them uh, either have well, Chief Justice Mike McGrath was previously registered as a Democrat, and he's contributed to Democratic candidates, so he's you know, pretty aligned with the Democratic Party. Um, and also on the ballot is Justice Dirk Sandifer. Um, he won in a highly contested race in 2016, uh, which was the most, it was also the most expensive judicial contest in the state's history. There was a lot of outside groups that got involved in that race. Um, and, and so, and he, you know, really won because of the backing of outside Democratic groups. So I expect, you know, both of these justices to be targeted which was which makes it a, a race that I thought we should pay attention to. Um, and, you know, we've seen Republican lawmakers in the legislature actually introduce bills um, that are currently under cons consideration that would uh, that call for eliminating two Supreme Court justice seats. And in one of the proposals laid out they're they're trying to actually eliminate the position that Justice Dirk Sandifer holds. Um, 
And, and so if that happens, it can also create a constitutional crisis in the state. So again, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what, what, what happens as, as things develop and evolve there. And now in Kentucky, there is a Supreme Court race up in 2024. That may not be particularly competitive. The Chief Justice is very conservative, and you'd expect him to probably be reelected. But what's interesting there is that the Republican Party in the legislature started going after the, the state Supreme Court because of some unhappiness with some of what they've been doing. The Supreme, yes, so exactly right. The The legislature has gone after the Supreme Court. Um, there's also proposals to um, currently in, in the legislature to make all races in the state partisan races. Um, the Chief Justice Van Meter actually uh, spoke uh, earlier this week to his hometown Rotary Club and, you know, really objected to that proposal, um, you know, but one of the biggest issues has been that the Supreme Court um, allowed a state abortion ban to remain in place. So that's probably going to make it a salient issue. Um, and that decision came in spite of the fact that Kentucky voters rejected a ballot measure um, just in the last election cycle that would have amended the Constitution to say there's no protection. And I think I mentioned earlier on as we were discussing, but the Kentucky Supreme Court um, has also, uh, in, in December of last year, made a decision on educational opportunity. Um, uh, it was an education bill that was narrowly passed in, in Kentucky's General Assembly and then vetoed by uh, Republican General Assembly, vetoed by Democratic Governor Andy Bashir. <laughs> um, but then the legislature overruled that that veto. Um, and so the um, Supreme Court ruled that education opportunity accounts, which would allow essentially for quote unquote school choice or uh, allowing funds to be set up for uh, people to use um, uh, tax dollars for private schools or going to other school districts, the Kentucky Supreme Court ruled that unconstitutional uh, in, in December of 2022. So, you know, again, I think Kentucky will be another Supreme Court race to watch um, just because some of because of the importance of these issues that are percolating underneath. So there's one more state we would like to talk about, and in Oklahoma, believe it or not, the state Supreme Court recently found a limited right to abortion under the Constitution, very unexpected in a lot of ways, given how conservative that state is. In Oklahoma, though, they use retention elections, and there are three Democratic-appointed justices who are going to be up in 2024. What do you see happening there? <laughs> Given that incumbency rates and retention elections are pretty much 100 <laughs> percent um, uh, across the country, um, I, I doubt. Well, I mean, who knows? I don't I don't actually like to be in the business of prediction, but uh, I, I find it highly implausible that that they would be ousted. But I guess it, it could happen if enough outside groups uh, get involved. I think, you know, in this recent case, um, you know, it they you know, they they did Previously, the right to abortion would say that it could only take place in case of a medical emergency. Um, and, and so the ruling that they just issued in this last week, um, it, it was a close ruling, 5-4 along party lines, um, along, along partisan and ideological lines. Um, but it, it really focused on the words preserve and save the mother's health. 
And they did decline to rule whether abortions were protected outside of these circumstances. So, um, you know, I think, of course, reproductive right reproductive rights advocates were were cheering, you know, this small amount of progress uh, for for women, but it's it wasn't really that radical of a decision. But certainly the those those justices um, could could come under fire. You know, I'm thinking back quite a ways. In 2010, I remember that in Iowa, three state Supreme Court justices there did lose retention elections specifically because they were targeted for having voted to rule that same-sex marriage was legal in the state. So I do feel like in these rare cases, especially when you have a real hot button issue, that maybe we shouldn't take these retention elections for granted. I think you're, I I mean, (laughs) I I think they should all be, (laughs) I mean, I think every election should be serious, right? That we should, we should take them all seriously. Um, You know, I think it's a question of how are our outside groups, are are the campaigns going to make them a serious or point of of issue? And and I think that was, that was obviously the case in Iowa over, um, over the the marriage issue, you know, and, and I think I was trying to say in my response that on this abortion, it's on, on this case of abortion, it was only really a minor um, clarification about what the Constitution allows. And so it, it wasn't that radical of a decision. So I'm not sure if it's if it's enough to really come up to that level of, of being targeted in the same way that those Iowa justices are. But, you know, in an ideal world, voters are really paying attention and using that retention vote. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, to to make decisions about whether justices should continue to serve, because in in those states that use retention elections, that's the only mechanism they have in in the Supreme Courts, because the nomination is all done through, um, you know, some sort of combined commission, legislature, gubernatorial decision-making process that that doesn't really allow voters a say in who's making the decisions that really affect their everyday lives. So I think your your point, David, is really important one. Kara, I have loved hearing about all of these races from you. They really never get the amount of attention they deserve. Before we let you go, we would love it if you would tell our listeners where they can follow your work and also how they can listen to your podcast. Well, thank you, David Neer and David Beard, so much for uh, having me on the show. This has been a real pleasure, and uh, it was fun to be in the hot seat. And I hope you both will come on Politics is Everything um, <laughs> and, and and join Kyle and I for, for some elections discussions. We'd love to have you both uh, on Politics is Everything. For your listeners, um, you can follow us at Center Number 4 Politics on Twitter. That's the best place to get all of our uh, resources. Um, our crystal ball is at centerforpolitics.org slash crystal ball. And my personal Twitter account is at Kara Ong. So thank you both so much for the opportunity. And we'll continue to follow this and hope to continue the conversation. Yeah, we look forward to having you back on to discuss more of these races as we get closer to the date. That's all from us this week. Thanks to Kara ong for joining us. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our editor, Trevor Jones, and a special thanks to our producer, Kara Zelaya. 
whose final show is this week. Kara was instrumental in the creation and launch of the down ballot, and we truly could not have done any of this without her. She will be missed, but we wish her the absolute best in her future endeavors. We'll be back next week with a new episode. 